This morning we are continuing in Mark 8. Mark chapter 8, if you have a Bible, I'd welcome you to turn there. And I'm glad you're here this morning because we are entering the midway point in the book of Mark. We have studied verse by verse and chapter through chapter starting back in June of last year. So we've made good progress and this is the middle section that has some really important concepts. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you wear, or in the past have needed to wear, contacts or glasses? Okay, a lot of you. The majority of you, wow. Okay, you can put your hands down, thank you. You can relate then to being able to see, but sometimes not being able to see well, right? Until you put those contacts in in the morning or put those glasses on, you can see foggy things. It's not clear, it's not sharp. I had a teacher in high school who said that when he first got his glasses, he realized that there were minute marks around the clock that he had never seen them before. (laughs) So you can relate to that. And that's part of our story today. A blind man receiving his sight, but not being able to see clearly at first. And we're going to talk about what that means for us. Hopefully you've had a chance to find that. If you have, please stand with me. I'm going to read starting in verse 22, and I'm going to read to verse 33. Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again. And made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he charged them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, I pray that you would help us during this time this morning to be mindful of the things of God and not of the things of men, that we would be able to put aside the cares of this world around us. They are many. There are important things we need to do or that we're responsible for. And yet, I pray that we would be able to put them aside right now to sit at your feet. That you would give us a heart for you and for your word, and that you would give us open ears and clear eyes that we would know exactly what you want us to hear from you today, 
to see in reading your word and what you want us to do in response to it, Lord. Your revelation demands a response. And so I pray that you would help us, that we would be doers of your word today and not hearers only. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, that I would be accurate in what I share today, that I would include what you want included and leave out what you want left out, that your word would come through loud and clear. You would help us to have receptive hearts, eyes, and ears in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. I have two main points for you today, and we're going to go through them twice because I see a parallel in the miracle and in the lesson to Jesus' disciples. So here we go. Main point number one, spiritual eyesight comes all at once. I'll explain what I mean by that. But we're going to see that in verses 22 to 24 and verses 27 to 30. Second, spiritual clarity comes gradually. That's verses 25 and 26, and then 31 to 33. Here are the questions I want you to ask yourself this morning. Question one, do you have spiritual eyesight? Do you have spiritual eyesight? And if you do, number two, do you have spiritual clarity? Those are the questions I'd like us to ask and answer ourselves. We're going to go back to verse 22, so find your place there. We're going to work our way through the passage verse by verse, starting with the idea that eyesight comes all at once. This is the second miracle recorded by Mark in his gospel, second miracle of Jesus that is recorded only in Mark's gospel. The first one was the deaf man back in chapter 7. This is also the first of two healings of blind people in the book of Mark. This is the first one. So we'll see another one when we get to chapter 10. Verse 22 says, Then he, that's Jesus, came to Bethsaida. And I'm going to show you where Bethsaida is. There were perhaps two Bethsaidas, but here he is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where they came. And you can see from the arrows here, that's where they're headed. They're going to head north. But that's where they are. This is the place Jesus had performed some of his greatest miracles. It was near this area, we believe, that he fed 5,000. And at this point in his ministry, it's possible that he'd already spoken the words that are recorded in Matthew 11 in which he condemned this area. I'm going to read a couple of verses for you from Matthew 11. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. For you. Frankly, Jesus was insulting these two cities, saying, all these mighty works that I performed here would have brought about repentance if I had gone to Gentile, pagan territory. They would have responded to the miracles. They would have responded to my message, and you didn't. Keep that in mind. Continuing in verse 22, And they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. Who's they? I don't know. They is an unidentified group of friends, relatives, neighbors, somebody, 
somebody who had the best interest of this blind man in mind, believed that Jesus could help this man and even had an idea of how they wanted him to do it. You're going to come and you're going to touch him and you're going to make him well. So that's what they're requesting. They're praying that of Jesus. When it says a blind man, we read that and we've read the Gospels. We know the story. And we think, okay, this is just another one of the miracles that Jesus did. It doesn't catch our eye. It doesn't catch our attention the way it really should. Because when you read the Old Testament, you will not find a recorded miracle of anyone restoring sight to a blind person. No one had ever done this. When you read the rest of the New Testament, there is no record, no biblical account that anyone except Jesus ever restored sight to a blind person. Well, why not? Let me tell you. This type of miracle, restoring sight to the blind, was a prophecy about the Messiah. And when we read in Matthew 11 and in Luke 7, we have the story of John the Baptist, who was in prison by that point. And he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus whether he was really the Messiah. Because John was in prison, and Jesus didn't seem to be doing what he expected the Messiah to do. So he seemed to have some doubts or some confusion, some questions anyway, and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. And while they were there, Jesus didn't really give them a response per se, but he let them watch. And then he said, what you've observed, go tell him. And I'm going to read it to you from Luke 7, 22. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. Here's what they've seen and heard. And this is what tops the list. You see it? That the blind see. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of that had been prophesied, mostly in Isaiah. These prophecies about what the Messiah would do, the type of miracles that he would perform. But at the top of the list, when Jesus said, go back and tell John the Baptist, and the parallel passage in Matthew 11 has the same thing, same order, starting off with, go tell him that you have seen the blind having their eyes opened. They have been healed. And I, I don't know about you, that's totally lost on me, because I've read the gospel so many times, it's just another miracle. No, this is a big deal. When Mark gets to this point in his gospel and shares a miracle that none of the other gospels share, it's an important one. And it's important because all of them are important, but because this is the first one he's recording that Jesus is showing himself to be the Messiah by performing this particular type of miracle. Verse 23, so he took the blind man by the hand. In a sense, he is answering their request. They want him to touch the blind man and heal him. Took him by the hand and led him out of the town. Look at the gentleness of Jesus, the kindness of him. He's leading the blind man out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Now, why do you suppose he took the blind man out of town? There are other places where we've seen he's trying to get away from the crowds and deal one-on-one. We actually saw that in the miracle recorded in Mark chapter 7 with the deaf man. He took him aside. So there's that. But remember, we think the Lord had already pronounced that judgment against this city. That I've done all these mighty works and you've ignored them. He's not going to do another one for them. He doesn't have more to say to them or more to show them. They have expressed their unbelief. So he may have been, in a sense, showing that judgment on this city because of their unbelief. Now, what did Jesus do? 
this is weird to us. This is kind of gross to us. He spat on his eyes. And I'd love to tell you that the Greek makes it something else. It doesn't. He spat on his eyes. The most convincing theory that I read about why he would do that is that often, first of all, blindness was much more common back then, but many times people who are blind would have encrusted eyes. Sorry, this is a little gross, but they were. And so he's using spittle, and he's going to soften that up and clean that up a little bit in preparation. What's another reason? Well, this man is blind. Yes, he could hear. His other senses would have been heightened, but touch would have been probably the most important thing. So taking him by the hand, spitting on his eyes, touching his eyes is something he can feel. He knows that Jesus is doing something. He, he would have heard his friends. He would have heard whatever Jesus had told him by that point. And it's reassuring to him. As odd as it seems to us, in the Hebrew culture in that time period, they believed that saliva, particularly the saliva of a holy person, had medicinal properties. That's what they believed. Perhaps that's why he included it. He did so, if you remember back in chapter 7, in verse 33 it says, and he took the deaf man aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. In the case of John chapter 9, do you remember the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him? A little bit similar. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. So he spits on his eyes, he puts his hands on him, likely on his eyes, showing him, it's going to be okay, I'm going to help you, I'm going to heal you. Verse 24, and he looked up and, and said, that was an answer to the question, I'm sorry, I'll read the question again. Jesus asked him if he saw anything. And verse 24 says, he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. For what it's worth, there's a definite article in there, I see the men. So it may be talking about the disciples, because remember, they had left everybody else in the city, they came out by themselves. But whatever it is, he can't see well. He's not seeing well yet. What's going on here? Is Jesus having an off day that he, he just didn't quite get this one on the first take? That can't be what's going on. We know better than that. He's all-powerful. He's the creator God. He's capable of healing this guy in one shot. Why would he not? And why would it be here in Mark's gospel when nobody else records this miracle? And I think answering those questions is the key to this entire section today. There are a couple possibilities. First, I believe there's a parallel here to conversion. When we first believe on Jesus, we go from being spiritually blind to seeing. And that's an instantaneous process. It just, it happens. It's an event. It happens all at once. We can tell light from dark, make out some objects like this man, but we can't see well. But over time, through a process called sanctification, we get clearer vision of who Jesus is. We see who he is and how we need to respond to the revelation of who he is. We understand better our Messiah. But it's also possible, and this, this could be in addition to what I just told you about conversion and sanctification, I believe the answer lies in the fact that this passage is here, this miracle is here, this only miracle that was performed in stages that we have in any of the four Gospels is here to parallel what's going to go on in the lives of his disciples. Because those of you who've been here the last few weeks, we had a section last week, they were in the boat, 
and I called them unbelieving believers, with Jesus, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. He asks all those questions of them. Bam, 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 bam. Do you not remember? Did you, are you blind? Do you not see? Are you deaf? Do you not hear? That describes them. Too often that describes us, that we just don't get it yet. We aren't remembering the works he has done in the past. We don't understand what he's saying to us now. And that's where the disciples were. They didn't get it yet. And we're going to see in the second half of this section, they really didn't get it, how they didn't get it. But I believe this is to portray the gradual step-by-step understanding of these disciples. Second point, we're getting ready to do verse 25. Clarity comes gradually. It says, then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. When it says he was restored, to me that's a hint. When it said that he saw men as trees walking, that is a hint to me that this man was not born blind. He had seen. He knew what trees were. He knew what men were. But he says he was restored. His vision was restored. His normal vision had returned. And he saw everyone clearly, literally, to see clearly from afar what we would normally describe as 2020 vision. He's seeing well from a distance. Jesus has worked a great miracle in this man's life. How amazing it would be to lose your eyesight and have Jesus restore it. And not just, okay, I can see a little bit, but I can see clearly. Crystal clear at a distance. He would have been rejoicing. Jesus then, in verse 26, sent him to his house, saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. He sent him away to his house. Apparently, he didn't live in the city of Bethsaida. And as Jesus has said many times before, don't tell anybody, just go back home. He doesn't want a mob. He doesn't want the publicity for this man or for himself. And for a change, we don't have a verse telling us, but he went and told everybody anyway. Apparently, this guy obeyed. Isn't that a nice, refreshing change from the other ones we've read about? So that's the first half of this. A short miracle, one that we would just kind of read over, and yeah, that's another guy Jesus healed. But it's different. It's unique in the Gospels. And while we're transitioning into the second half, this is a good time for us to review the theme of the Gospel of Mark. Some of you were here when we started back in June, and several times in the summer and fall I shared this with you. I believe that the theme of the book of Mark is Jesus as the suffering servant... And the call and cost of being his disciple. And you may be thinking, we really haven't seen that yet. No, we really haven't. Because we're in a transition section where we're going to see it a bunch. From here till the end of chapter 10. Jesus is the suffering servant. They didn't understand that yet. And he was calling them, they understood that. But it would cost them to be his disciples. And we're going to focus on that next time. The first half of The Gospel of Mark. Because we began so long ago with Mark 1.1 that says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus the Messiah. We're going to talk about Christ is the same term as Messiah, the one who was promised, the anointed one. So we as readers have known since the beginning that's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. But now we have a transition. For the first half of the book, We have seen miracle after miracle. We've had lepers who were cleansed. We've had those who had unclean spirits. 
the demons were cast out, a lame man who was able to walk, now a blind man, we've had a deaf man, we've had various people, we've had someone raised from the dead. Lots of miracles, miracle, miracle, miracle. Not so much on the teaching. A little bit in parables. We had the parable of the kingdom, the seed, and, and that kind of thing, but not a lot. So miracles outnumber teaching quite a bit in the first half of the book up to this point. Why? In order to identify who is the Messiah, to show Jesus is the Messiah. But now we're going to see a transition. And from here to the end of the book, in chapter 16, you notice we're in chapter 8, we're about halfway through. The second half of the book is going to have much more emphasis on teaching. And usually it's not to the crowds, it's to Jesus' disciples. It's what he's teaching them. It's certainly for their benefit the most. And now Mark is going to go about describing the Messiah. What is he like? What will he do? And it was a big surprise to them at that point. We're in verse 27, and we're starting over again, right? Main point number one, spiritual eyesight comes all at once. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Caesarea Philippi, here's our map again. I said we were headed north, so we're going all the way up here. This is, as far as the record that we have, this is the farthest north that Jesus ever traveled. What do we know about Caesarea Philippi? About 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, it was built, or rebuilt, I should probably say, by Herod Philip in honor of Caesar Augustus. That's why it's called Caesarea Caesar Philippi. Philip, there you go. There was another Caesarea, that's another reason it's called Caesarea Philippi, there was a Caesarea by the sea, and you'll read about that some in the book of Acts, for example. So that's to differentiate. Caesarea Philippi had been a center of worship, but not of the true God. It had been a center of Baal worship in the past. It had been a center of worship of the Greek god Pan, and by this point, remember, it's been renamed to Caesarea Philippi. It's part of the emperor worship of that time. So Jesus is taking his disciples north. He's taking them to a city, to a region that is very pagan, worshiping false gods. This is false religion. And that's where he chooses to start quizzing his disciples and asking them about who I am. Who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the setting. Verse 28 he has just asked, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. Now maybe Peter answered all those questions. Maybe different disciples said different things. But they're answering the question, who do men say that I am? And we've talked about some of these before because when we talked about Herod Antipas and he had John in prison, that he heard about Jesus and his ministry and his disciples' ministry and he was thinking the same thing about Jesus. He's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Does that really make sense? No, it doesn't. But that's what people were saying. Or Elijah, because Elijah's supposed to come before the Messiah comes back, so maybe this is Elijah, or maybe it's the prophet that Moses said, a prophet will come in my name. We talked about that briefly on Tuesday night. That this is the prophet like Moses who will come. So everybody is speculating. They think that he's a special man. One of my commentators wrote this. All these views were favorable toward Jesus and all acknowledged something supernatural about him. He is special. He is unusual. He is unique. They were impressed with his prophetic character. They were impressed by the miracles. They were impressed by the teaching. But his messiahship was concealed from them. They didn't get that yet. This is an amazing prophet. This is an amazing teacher. This is an amazing miracle worker. 
This is somebody who was prophesied in the past, but they don't get that he's the Messiah. Why? Because he doesn't fit their mold of what they thought the Messiah would be, what they thought the Messiah should be. So Jesus asks, this is another pop quiz, if you will. He says, take out a half sheet of paper and write down everybody that thinks that I'm whoever. Who do men say that I am? Who do people think I am? And they answered that question. Question number two. But who do you say that I am? If you mark or underline in your Bible, that's a good one. Who do you say that I am? There really is no more important question on the planet. Who do you say Jesus is? Because it's good to, to think, oh, he was a good teacher. He was a good man. Who is he? to you. Not what other people say about Jesus. Not what do my parents say about Jesus. Not what does my pastor say about Jesus. What do you believe to be true about Jesus? Bernard McGee said this was their final exam for the first phase of his ministry. Who do you say that I am? Continuing in verse 29, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. This is the first time in this gospel human writer is Mark, we believe influenced very strongly by Peter. This is the first time we see Peter acting as the spokesman. We're going to see it a bunch more as we continue in this gospel. And what does he say? You are the Christ. And that's a familiar term to us, but sometimes either as a child or as an adult we get confused. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is his name. The angel told Mary and told Joseph his name is Jesus. What does that mean? That means Yahweh saves. It means rescuer. It means savior. Christ is not his last name, like Jesus Christ. That's not how it works. Christ is a title. And his title, Christ, is a Greek word that is the equivalent of Messiah in Hebrew. So when you see Christ in the New Testament, think Messiah from the Old Testament. And either way, it's describing the same thing anointed one that's a nice way to say it i heard a different definition this week smeared one because that's the picture that oil has been put on this person now i want you to think with me for a minute who in the old testament was anointed with oil can you think of any groups i just heard king king david so kings samuel was the prophet we covered this on tuesday night right samuel anointed Saul, the first king of Israel, David, the next king of Israel, and future kings were anointed usually by prophets. They were anointed. Okay, so we have a group, kings. Any other groups that you can think of from the Old Testament who were anointed? Priests. Think all the way back to the time of Aaron and all the high priests in succession after that. There was special oil that was poured on him. We even have a psalm about that, the the oil flowing down the beard of Aaron, you remember? Priests. Priests were anointed. Are there any other groups you could think of that might have been anointed in the Old Testament? Sick people, yes, that's true. But as far as an occupation, maybe I'll say it that way, that'll be clearer. Any other groups? The only specific example of this that I could find was Elijah was told by God to go anoint Elisha, his successor. And, And what was Elijah? What was Elisha? What was their occupation they were prophets they were prophets called by god so we have prophet priest 
king. These are the ones who were anointed in the Old Testament. Who is Jesus to us? He is our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. He is the fulfillment of that type in the Old Testament. All three of those. He is the anointed one. The Messiah would be all three of those things. That's what it means when he says, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I've read the Gospel of John, and I know that earlier in his Gospel, really back in chapter 1, we have Andrew saying, this is the Christ, and I'm going to go tell my brother Peter about it. So this isn't the first time it's dawned on them that it's Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. But this is later in the ministry. And they've already seen enough to know this isn't quite how we expected it to, to go down. Because what are they expecting? They're expecting a conquering king. They're, they're expecting a general, a warrior, to come throw off the shackles of oppression. Because who are they under? Politically, they're under Rome. And is that what Jesus is doing? Certainly not yet. They've just reviewed, what does everybody else say about me? Well, some say this and some say that. And so now, deeper into his ministry, after following him as the 12, after seeing the miracles, after hearing the teaching, after hearing the parables, having some of the parables explained to them, now he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. It is a more significant statement, if I could say it that way, than what we read early on in his ministry in John chapter 1. Now, how did Peter do? Matthew tells us a lot more. He, he says that this has been revealed to you by God. You can read that on your own if you want to. But was it a good statement that he made? Did he get it right? Did he get an A plus on his quiz? He does. But it's incomplete, and we're going to see in a minute why it's incomplete. Because he knows the right answer, but he doesn't know how to apply it. He knows he's the Messiah, but what Peter means by Messiah is not what Jesus means by Messiah at that point. We see this today, don't we? There are other denominations, even occults, who believe this, this, or that about Jesus. And it's off, it's close. It may even include some truth. But Jesus was not created. He is the eternal Son of God. He's not an angel. He's not the half-brother of Satan. None of the other stuff. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he is God. And he is the Son of God. We'll come to that in a moment. This confession is given by God, according to Matthew 16, but it is incomplete. One of my study Bibles used two Ds to make it sound good. The messianic son of man is both divine and destined to suffer. They've got the divine part. They know he's God. But they have no idea he's going to suffer. He's destined to suffer. So he makes this great announcement. You are the Christ. And what does Jesus follow up with? Verse 30. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Doesn't that seem weird? They just got it right. Isn't this the time to go proclaim it from the housetops? No. Because what do they think the Messiah is going to be? A conquering king, a warrior, someone to throw off the shackles of Rome. Is that what he came to do the first time? No. Do you think that's going to go well for Jesus or them? No. He says, don't tell anybody. 
We're coming to our second point for the second time this morning. Spiritual clarity comes gradually. Now that Jesus' disciples understood who he was, he began to teach them what he would do. In this section, I mentioned earlier, this is going to go all the way to the end of chapter 10. He tells them a total of three times, makes this prediction, I am going to die. The Messiah, the servant, is going to die. I am going to suffer. And he gives more details each time. I'm going to Jerusalem in order to die. Verse 31, and he began to teach them. He's beginning to teach them. It's going to continue. Began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. The many things we're going to find out more as we go in future studies. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This is a change in his teaching. He's giving new and different information from what he's given before. And how does he describe himself? He describes himself as the Son of Man. This is the name Jesus used most often of himself. It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And the Son of Man is a heavenly figure. Go to the end of the world, the end times. He is given authority and power. So what this is saying is that Jesus is saying he's the Messiah without saying he's the Messiah. It's a more indirect term. You will not find many, if any, occasions in the four Gospels when Jesus said, I am the Messiah. There are times he will agree when people ask him. Ask him. But he doesn't normally come out and say, I am the Messiah. Instead, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, but it means the same thing. It's a little bit more of an ambiguous terminology because it's from the book of Daniel. It's a, a prophecy of the one who would be the Messiah. But anytime you see him refer to himself as the Son of Man, he means the Messiah. And what does he say about the Son of Man? The Son of Man must suffer. It's required that he suffer many things. And he is going to be abused, mistreated by says three groups of people. We're going to see these groups multiple times as we continue in this gospel. Elders, chief priests, and scribes. The elders were the lay leaders. The chief priests were mostly Sadducees. And the scribes were mostly Pharisees. We've come across them several times in this gospel already. These three combined formed the Sanhedrin. That would be like the Supreme Court of Israel. So we'll come back and talk about them more in the future. What does he say else? He doesn't just say, the Son of Man's going to die. Your verse doesn't end there, does it? What else does it say? He's going to rise again. Okay? Take a wild guess. You may not have studied this before. That's okay. But just take a wild guess. If there are three times he's going to predict his death, how many of those three times do you think he's going to predict his resurrection right after that same sentence? Three. Good. I knew y'all could do well with that. All three times. Every time he brings up the Son of Man's going to suffer, the Son of Man's going to suffer, the Son of Man's going to die, the Son of Man's going to be mistreated. And will rise again the third day. Did they understand it then? No. But it was there. Every time he told them. He told them, I will rise again. Verse 32. He spoke this word openly. What does that mean? He's not speaking in parables. The same word is translated plainly over in John 16. From this point on in the Gospel of Mark... Jesus says very plainly, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be mistreated, I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He's not speaking in parables anymore. He's speaking very plainly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
Peter, speaking for the group, expressing the first thought that comes to his mind. That's generally the way he did. But do you realize how ironic this is in this moment? He just said what? You are the Christ. What is he saying? You are God. You are the Son of God. You've got this wrong. You must have misunderstood the plan. God couldn't have told you that you're going to die. That's not how this is supposed to happen. Why? Because Peter and the other disciples are still thinking, you're coming to free us from Rome. That's why you're here. And that's what we've been waiting for. We're looking forward to it. We're right there with you. That's why James and John are asking, can we sit on one side and each, each of us be on one side of you when you come into your kingdom? That's what they're thinking. That's their idea of what is the Messiahship? What is the kingdom? That's their mistaken idea. Not because it won't happen, just because it wasn't going to happen then. So instead of treating him as Lord, God, you are the Christ. Let me straighten you out here. That's what he's doing. He takes him, to his credit, he takes him aside. It seems like it's supposed to be a private conversation. He begins to re- began to rebuke him. And another thing I should say, rather than just bash Peter all the time, what is he motivated by here? More than anything else, he's probably motivated by his love for his Savior, for his Master. He's a disciple. He's a follower of Christ. He wants what's best for him, what he thinks is best for him. Verse 33, but when he had turned around, that's Jesus, and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, same word, saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I think it's significant that he turned around and looked at all of his disciples. Some people even think that means he turned his back to Peter. He's not calling Peter Satan, okay? But he's saying that idea is demonic. That concept of who the Messiah is and what I'm here to do right now is wrong. Why? Because we've seen this before. Mark doesn't go very deep into how Jesus was tempted, but we can get that from Matthew and Luke. And what do we read? Satan came and tempted him in the wilderness in three different ways. One of them was, just bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. What is that? That's an idea of a Messiah who can have the glory without the cross. And Jesus recognizes that in Peter's line of thought and calls him out on it and says, you are out of line. Your ideas are from Satan. And it's all of you. It's not just you, Peter. It's all of you. That's why he turned around and looked at all the disciples. Because they would have been agreeing, yeah, you tell him. He's not going to die. He's not going to suffer. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Just get out of my way. Why? You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In that moment, Peter was not concerned about God's purposes he was concerned about what he thought needed to happen the things of people concerned about things in this world concerned about what he thought the Messiah was supposed to do that's where we're going to stop for today we're going to pick it up and we're going to actually back up in some of what I just said as we go into what does Jesus do with that information yes he's the Messiah that wasn't necessarily a new idea when we got to this point but Peter is stating it, and the other disciples are agreeing with it. It's true. It's good. But their idea of what the Messiah would be was incomplete. 
And that is evidenced by what Peter said. And Jesus, for those of you who won't be here next week or you'll be teaching in the children's class, Jesus is going to teach them this has implications for you too. Those who are my disciples, those who are my followers, you're going to have to take up your cross. There's going to be a cost to you as well. That's where he's going with this. Each of these major predictions of Jesus' death, it's going to also include his resurrection, it's going to be both, but then it's going to say, here's what the cost is for followers of me. We're going to see it all three times. So you'll have to come back next week for us to do that. But what are we talking about today? What have we spent this time together saying? Spiritual eyesight comes all at once. That light bulb moment. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, gives us life. We get it. Jesus is Lord. But if you're like me and like most people, you don't instantaneously know everything about Jesus. You know he's Lord. You know he's Savior. You've believed on him. But we need to get our thinking corrected at times by this word. And that's what we saw for the disciples, and that's what we need. And that clarity takes time. It comes gradually. So the two questions I asked you to ask yourself, do you have spiritual eyesight? What do I mean by that? Do you have faith in Jesus alone for salvation? Are you a child of God? If so, do you have vision, spiritual clarity? Can you see 2020 with the help of the Holy Spirit and with this word? Famous hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton wrote, I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. Does that describe you? There was a time I know I was blind, I was spiritually blind. I have my sight. God's given it to me. There may be somebody here in the room. There may be somebody watching online. That's not true of you. You can have salvation in Christ today by believing in him, by calling on his name, by putting your trust in this Savior, Jesus. Christians, how's your vision? Are you cooperating with the Holy Spirit as he gives you greater clarity about who Christ is and what he wants to do to change you to be more like him? Has he shown you something new today that you need to obey? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is God's word, so I believe God has spoken to each person here this morning whether we were listening, whether we're going to do anything about it, that's a different question. But he's speaking. And if the Holy Spirit is telling you something specific that needs to change in your life, then my prayer would be that you're going to obey him. That may mean confessing sin. There may be an area of your life you need to change, a relationship you need to work on. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, the Holy Spirit does, and if he's showing you, I pray that you'd obey him this morning. If you don't know Christ... I pray you would call on him today. You would put your faith in him. Father, we pray that you would work your will in our hearts, that you would accomplish your purposes. We know that your word does not return void, but accomplishes exactly what you want. And that's what we're asking for today, that it would bring you glory and advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.